know, this really is the art of collaboration. How do we get very different perspectives, very different backgrounds? Uh, I call it cognitive diversity. Uh, and how do we bring all of that to the table as a leader? take all of those great ideas, synthesize those, generate alignment, and then get everyone to feel appreciated that although their idea may not be the one we go with, it was important, it was heard, and that as a leader, you're grateful for their input to help sharpen the solution. Hey everyone, thank you again for joining me on the Emotional Optimism Podcast. I really appreciate your attention and you being there. This podcast is for all of us, all of us, all of us that want to create a space where people come to feel seen and loved and do great, great things. Today, I'm joined by former Top Gun instructor and fighter pilot, David Robinson, and he and I have an incredible conversation on organizational leadership and performance improvement. We talk through prioritization, we talk through preparation, we talk through having a passion for excellence and how to bring this to your people and your team. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And thank you again for your awesome, awesome attention. Well, let's get started. It is, uh, it's amazing to see you on screen. It's wonderful to have you here, David. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, Claude, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. There's so much I want to talk about, especially when it comes to leadership, your principles, your background, of course, in the, uh, in the Marines. I would love to just start with who was David at five, six, seven years old? Who was this guy? <laughs> Well, let's see. That's a long time ago, Claude. A lot has uh, happened since there. Five, six, seven years old, uh, just a normal kid growing up in a small town in Northern Virginia. Um, uh, you know, grew up with uh, two wonderful parents and two wonderful brothers and just a really supportive family that encouraged me to um, do everything that I could do to reach my full potential. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my father was a veterinarian. My mother was a high school business teacher and, uh, you know, just really had a, a really supportive environment, selected uh, the military route uh, as my as my career choice. And that led me to the U.S. Naval Academy. And I thought maybe I'd spend a few years in the military, but I actually ended up spending 25 years as a fighter pilot in the U.S. Marines. Flew off of aircraft carriers. I was a Top Gun instructor, serving combat in Iraq. Uh, you know, just some wonderful people I had the opportunity to, to serve alongside. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> the rest is in the book for sure. Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, and you received the Bronze Star Medal, of mm. course, which uh, is no small task, I'm sure. I'm sure. What? Um, why the military? What was that decision all about when you, you know, you took that left turn? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as I look back, I think I uh, thought it really came down to, um, I wanted a college experience that was, uh, would, would, would push me and develop me in, in multiple dimensions. And so I was really attracted to the service academies. I applied to all three, West Point, uh, Annapolis and, uh, U.S. Air Force Academy. And, um, I, you know, I just wanted uh, an atmosphere that would push me, uh, you know, mentally and physically, emotionally, and um, in, in all those dimensions. And, you know, looking back, it was the best thing that ever happened because it really began uh, to um, 
really helped me develop as a leader, which uh, is really my passion that I've discovered over the last few decades. Yeah, that's wonderful. When you when we talk about uh, the emotional development, is this something that that you felt like you you said you thought that maybe the military could give you that physical, emotional, uh, mental development? Did they concentrate on the development of self of let's just call it emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Is that something that it came to via osmosis or were there actual classes back then? Yeah, well, I mean, I think emotionally when I say, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I knew what I wanted in terms of emotional development. I know this is uh, in your your wheelhouse and something that you're very passionate about. Um, I I feel like um, when I look back, leadership is really hard. And it really pushes you emotionally in the decisions that you're forced to make and, you know, developing as a follower uh, at a service academy and then developing, you know, as soon as you become a commissioned officer, you're a leader from the Mm -hmm. very beginning. And there are so many challenges and tough decisions uh, to be made. And certainly, I think that um, self-leadership comes first and, and you have to be able to discipline and lead yourself before you can effectively lead others. And that's what they really taught us. Uh, you know, at the at the Naval Academy and all the service academies is how to discipline yourself, how to lead yourself so that you can be fully prepared to lead others. And with that comes emotional awareness. Uh, with that comes uh, pressure uh, and how you respond emotionally to that pressure. But I, uh, although I didn't enjoy it at the time, uh, looking back, I am so glad that I had that foundation, you know, given many of the challenges that unfolded in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I love hearing that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I can only imagine what what those early day challenges could have been like to get you ready for the high pressure environments that you lived in and worked in and survived in and yeah. thrived in too for uh-huh. for many many years let's um let's zigzag for a second to leadership because that's something that 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 is who you are and you are working with um high powered leaders every single day i want to ask you about some of the common denominator traits you see in leaders today, the positive ones and the ones that maybe the common denominator ones that, that are more issues that you need to kind of take some massaging to and some sandpaper to. So what are the, what are the ones that common denominator, like really positive, like, yes, of course, this is why you're a leader. And then the other ones in terms of this is what we really want to work on. Any kind of generalizations? Well, I'll start with, you know, when I think of, um, you know, the many exceptional leaders that I have a chance to work with. And, you know, there were so many in the military that were mentors to me and that, you know, uh, were, um, you know, that I was able to apprentice under, if you will, that really invested in me. And and that's that's what I love about uh, the military and the Marine Corps. And and specifically, I think, um, you know, when I look at exceptional, successful leaders of the ones that I work with at the CEO or C-suite level, I think three things come to mind, Claude. First of all, there's this level of persistence, right? I mean, um, the, the the burden of leadership is real, and uh, you know, it's it's perseverance and persistence are such an important component of being able to lead an organization. Because, as you know, uh, things don't always go well every day, right? There are fires to put out. We've talked about that before, and and, and challenges to, to overcome. People can be complicated at times, and, you know, uh, getting people to work together toward a common goal is, is quite a challenge, and that takes a level of 
kind of a marathon mentality, if you will. I, I see many, many leaders take a sprint mentality and that's harmful for themselves and also the people that uh, report to them. So I think persistence, call it perseverance, uh, whatever the case might be, would be point number one. The second key trait that I see among exceptional leaders is a commitment to self-improvement. And, you know, the day that we feel like that we know it all, uh, I, I found that, boy, the, the, the fall is coming and it's, it's going to hurt. And um, I, I see really exceptional leaders have an element of humility where they um, are committed to self-improvement. They know they have blind spots and they are looking for other people to help them fill in those blind spots. And so I think that element of humility and self-improvement would be point number two. And then related to that would be point number three. And that's just the ability to listen. Um, yeah, I found as a junior leader, you know, right when I got commissioned out of the service academy, I felt kind of pressure to uh, prove to other people uh, how much I knew as a leader. I mean, it's kind of a credibility thing. And it's like we want to we want to talk first and listen last. And I always encourage senior leaders. I learned the hard way as I went through my military career. Really, we need to flip that around and, and ask and listen first and then speak last because, I found that when you listen to your people, they have great ideas, most of the time, much better than your ideas. And if you stifle that conversation by expressing your opinion early on, it can really inhibit you in terms of innovation and finding the, the best solutions. And so those are three traits that I find as common themes among exceptional leaders and not to cop out and take the easy way out. But I think the, the opposite of those would be a common traits of individuals who aren't so successful. I really I appreciate that. Uh, and I was I was nodding my head and smiling when as you were going through them. The marathon mentality is so important to understand and to really get into one's DNA and veins. You know, we see so many in the last 10 years, let's say so many startups, obviously, the um, uh, the Facebooks of the world, social media, TikTok, look at that, that's, you know, over a billion users now. We see things that it appears as though they happen overnight, but that's because we see what we want to see rather than the entire hard work, the 24-hour days that many people have had to get to the launch, which then, of course, looks like easy breezy, a sprint. So the, I, I agree with you. The marathon mentality is so important, and I can only imagine back in the military days as you were working on missions, I mean, the missions take a massive marathon mentality. You have to set up so much strategy prior to whatever it is you're, you're getting to on that launch day, for example. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, there are some missions that, um, you know, you find out and then you have to execute it two hours later. There are other missions that are, you know, more strategic, uh, you might say that, you know, you may plan for weeks or even months. And certainly, uh, you know, the reason why I think the marathon analogy fits so well is that uh, there are ups and downs. There are good miles and bad miles and, uh, you know, bad things will inevitably happen. And how we respond to those is so critical as a leader to set the tone within our team, to maintain that motivation and discipline throughout the full 26.2 uh, miles, so to speak. Right. And there are those inevitable walls that you're going to hit where you just feel like I, I, I'm not sure that we uh, see, can see daylight here. And, and what's the, the best course of action? But it's really important to uh, to keep powering through. It is. And and. Not to be not to be coy at all, but one of the things I look for in any leader and one of the things I really try to develop in my teams is this quote unquote wartime general mentality. Yeah. Because it's you know, peacetime is easy. 
peacetime is wonderful. Peacetime is a you know blue blue sky and nice little breeze. But wartime, when you you know when you know what is really falling down every single place you look and beyond, that's when you need that type of leader and team you know team dynamic to really get through. Without you know, sometimes you just have to put yourself in the background. Like we've got work to do, uh, and I imagine that's what so much of the study and learning and those first years in officer school are all about, you know, really getting, getting yourself ready, as you said in the beginning, to understand yourself a bit and understand, you know, learn to self-regulate, if you will, too. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I think, uh, you know, the service academies and all, all military uh, training, if you will, at the beginning is a pressure cooker by design. And the, the intention there is to create adversity, to make sure that you know how you can respond in adversity. And as you alluded to, Claude, I totally agree. True character is not measured when the sun's shining and everything is going well. I mean, true character is measured in the face of adversity. And that's what leadership is all about. I couldn't, I, I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't. The uh, So going into the, the three traits that you listed out, persistence, perseverance, Commitment to self, humility, I think is so fantastic that you said that too. And then the ability to listen. The um, in terms of the CEOs that you work with and the other and the other leaders, C-suite leaders, when we talk about commitment to self and uh, and self-improvement, how do you see that coming to life in those leaders you're coaching? Or how do you suggest that they take care of themselves, if you will, check themselves? Well, I think, you know, it, it first comes down to acknowledging that we all have growth areas. And, uh, you know, the first step is to try to uh, make sure that there's a mentality there, that there is room for growth. It, it may be a small room for growth for some, and it may be a huge gap for others. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've been there with those huge gaps, uh, you know, of growth. And then once we acknowledge those, I think it's important to try to discern through others' eyes as well as our own. Uh, what those gaps are and where we could get the most return on invested you know, time to try to close those gaps and what are most relevant and important for the organization, given their mission, given the situation that they're in, you know, in their life cycle. Um, and then I think uh, there's this level of accountability, and this is where it's most uncomfortable for some, and that is, are you willing to honestly uh, and, and intentionally ask for feedback from others? And be willing to accept that candid feedback in the form of constructive criticism. Uh, can you check your ego at the door and, and almost look at yourself through a third-person lens and say, how can I, I, David Robinson, become a better leader by accepting feedback, uh, and I call them debriefs, uh, from others, 360 feedback, whatever the case might be. And it's not just about the uh, you know, feedback on a recurring basis. There are also opportunities whenever we get together as a team and when I've led a team or when executives are leading a team, there's an important mission to accomplish or a lot of time invested in some type of an endeavor to huddle up afterwards and, and do some forensics. I call it a debrief, three questions. Uh, what happened relative to, to our goals? That's question number one. Number two, why did we either achieve or not achieve our goals? Number two. And then number three would be, what can we do as a team uh, to improve ne the next time we do this, right? And so 
There were no who's in there. It's not, hey, Claude, you messed this up, so fix yourself, right? There were no uh, you know, finger pointing. It's all about continuous improvement. And if you adopt that kind of mentality, and if I'm the leader of the team, Dave Robinson speaks up first and says, wow, I really could have done a better job in this area. I've seen the floodgates open with everyone else on the team saying, oh, well, if the boss can admit a, admit a mistake, I can certainly admit a mistake. And that's where the real learning happens. I just, I want to applaud that. I have chills just from you saying that because being able to take accountability as a leader and literally raise your hand and say, I could have done that better. or hey, that's on me. It diffuses. Yeah. Like you say, it diffuses the pressure. And then Claude, Amy, Alex can say, yeah, I could have done that better too. I mean, it was still a great mission, but I realized that you know, I didn't show up when I said I would show up. And that meant that other people had to take my work on or whatever. So I love that you said that. I really do. Uh, so thank you so much. And the debrief is so important. And one of the things we call it, we, we call feedback uh, where I work, kind candor. Hmm. And the reason we call it kind candor and not, for example, feedback or radical candor, as uh, Kim Scott's book suggests, is our company is really built uh, around collaboration, kindness, compassion, empathy um, is a big word that my CEO, Gary Vaynerchuk, uses quite a bit. And, uh, and being the bigger person in every situation or learning to be the bigger person. So the kindness comes first. And if you've built that rapport with someone or built that trust or they know that they don't need to get into fight, flight, freeze, what you're doing is you're bringing out feedback as a gift then we feel and we find through our training that then we can be more candorous yeah. because not everyone is, let's, let's be honest, like not everyone gives feedback well, and certainly not everyone receives feedback well. Mm. Um, but to be at that level, certainly where you were in the military, where this has to happen, we have to be able to post game, right? Debrief. But to be with these uh, top-notch leaders as you are today and, and help them potentially get better at receiving feedback or being open to must be just a very rewarding task, I imagine, when you see it click. No doubt, Claude. I'll tell you, I... Um... You know, I didn't. I didn't understand the depths of the of the neurochemistry involved behind what you just described. I, I know that you understand it, but I, I learned it when I was researching my book that I just published uh, last week, uh, "The Substance of Leadership." And um, I, uh, you know, when I was an instructor at Top Gun, uh, I saw this phenomenon, you know, many, many times. And um, you know, you get a bunch of strong egos in a room, twenty or thirty fighter pilots, and you have debrief displays where you have radar and you know video recordings uh, that are looking at every single aspect of the 1.5 hour mission that you just flew with all everyone in the audience judging every little thing you did, your communications, were they exact or not. Uh, you can imagine that, um, you know, whenever the finger pointing starts, the deflector shields come down, right? And, and that's where, you know, it's candor, but sometimes it's not very kind. And we don't like to hear our own name pointed out in front of others for making a mistake. And so that's where the cortisol floods the brain, the deflector shields come down, the learning is over. Uh, but whenever I saw the leader of that mission stand up at the beginning and say, 
Uh, I could have done a lot better job here. It cost us mission success, or we could have been far more effective. Uh, we didn't uh, you know, call out people by name. We called them out by their call sign or their position in the flight. We tried to take an objective view of that debrief. That level of vulnerability and transparency is really what created um, you know, an environment of teaching and learning, uh, you know, that, that at Top Gun is, is where I really learned this. And that's where I saw that taken to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. I, I have so much, it's not, it's not, it's beyond joy. I have so much hope based on what you've just said, that those types of things are happening in our military. And then there are people like you that have, that are dedicated and devoted to bringing this to leadership today and to really if I may, changing the paradigm of what leadership looked like mm-hmm. back in the day to where we need to go with leadership today based on the problems we're trying to solve, certainly uh, uh, the, the talent that we're trying to attract, um, bottom and top line growth, all of those things. Absolutely. So it's, that's, that's hopeful and promising and, and, and wonderful uh, for sure. Um, so one of the things that you also mentioned, which uh, I agree with completely, is the ability to listen and to get into that beginner's headspace, if you will, or um, to allow oneself as a leader to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers and I might learn something if I listen to this person. And it makes me, um, well, I guess the question is in terms of the, the the leaders that you work with out there, is this something that you feel like you train more, or you walk into a situation and you and you see that oh that leader, that leader knows how to listen and communicate. Hmm. Well, I think it's both, really. I mean, I think there are some leaders who just instinctively, whether it's just their personality or their experience, or they've uh, had other great leaders that they've seen and worked for and been able to learn from who have really perfected the art of listening. And um, at the same time though, Claude, I think there are are some frameworks that we can use to get leaders to become better listeners, to help leaders become uh, better listeners. I always encourage executives to to get really good at asking the question, what do you think we should do? Uh, As opposed to saying, this is what I want you to do. And I, I encourage them to use a framework where they actually intentionally tee up a listening opportunity. And that is, if we have a certain mission or task that we need to accomplish as a team, then as a leader, get really clear on what the mission is in terms of the task we need to accomplish, more importantly, the purpose, the why. What's the why behind, behind our task? And then perhaps most importantly, what does success look like if we do uh, achieve success? And then uh, tee that up for your team and allow your team or two or three sub teams to go uh, come back with to you with some answers on how they would go about accomplishing the task. And so it really opens the aperture and allows them to think innovatively, creatively, allows them to bring their own experience and expertise. And oh, by the way, this process allows them to gain ownership into the solution. Now, you may only have the luxury of choosing one of those two or three courses of action that they bring, but at least their voice was heard. And I find that if you encourage leaders to uh, use this technique, it's really effective in coming up with a more optimal solution than they could have thought otherwise and really empowering the team to get excited about where it's headed. And it's so easy. I know that it might be easier said than done in some cases, but to ask your team, what do you think we should do? 
yeah. is such a act of generosity, I think. And, um, and, and at, to your point really shows that you're open, that you, you may not have all the answers, but you also want to bring the collective the, into uh, the problem solving, if you Absolutely. will. Yeah. Well, you, mentioned, you mentioned your culture is, is one of collaboration. And, you know, this really is the art of collaboration. How do we get very different perspectives, very different backgrounds, very, uh, I call it cognitive diversity. Uh, and how do we bring all of that to the table as a leader, take all of those great ideas, synthesize those, generate alignment, and then get everyone to feel appreciated that although their idea may not be the one we go with, it was important, it was heard, and uh, that as a, a leader, you're grateful for their input to help sharpen the solution. Yeah, I'm. I'm just writing that down. I love the. I love that cognitive diversity. That is so crucial today, for sure. You know, let's talk a little bit about the um, the talent out there today. In terms of, you know, we've got five generations in a in a company, um, and we certainly have got, you know, our gen our Gen Zers and our young, younger set of millennials really uh, taking up a lot of space and they're you know, wonderful people, very curious and opinionated folks. What would you say, um, what would you say would be a couple different great retention strategies for, you know, you, you and I are reading the same articles, you know, the great resignation and people really just wanting to work from home or, or, or um, work remotely. Now, retention is different for every single company based on what they're doing, but what would you, um, what are a couple of different general retention strategies or ideas that you might offer? Well, thanks for asking. I, I get this question a lot. Uh, you know, in, in my book, I build what I call the leadership triad. I've had a number of leaders that say, Dave, I don't have time to focus on everything. Just tell me what's most important. And Claude, I encourage them to focus on their culture, their people, and their mission. If you can get those three things right and keep them in balance, uh, I have found that you can maximize your chance of uh, leading a high-performing team and at least helping your team reach its full potential. And so I would say in terms of, you know, the great resignation and the competition for talent, um, my advice goes back to those three um, key, key areas within that leadership triad, right? If you create a culture uh, that is um, a culture of trust uh, that can attract great talent. You're already uh, part of the way there to retaining great talent, right? And then when you talk about people, um, if you can create an environment that respects people uh, and, and, and treats everyone with fairness, dignity, and respect, regardless of which of those five generations you come from, respect their diversity, respect their cognitive diversity, respect the, their, back, their different backgrounds, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, and can really give them an opportunity to grow and develop, then you're two-thirds of the way there. And then finally, in terms of retaining that talent, if you have a mission and you can articulate that vision in a way that makes them feel like they are larger and uh, than, than uh, they're a part of something larger and greater than themselves, then they they will be inspired to to stay within that culture as long as they feel like they're being respected and growing and that they're contributing to something uh, larger than themselves. I find that that approach spans all generations, and uh, at least that's the advice that I give. I love it. And it's very succinct and very clear. Obviously, it takes work and it takes teams to, to pull this off, but um, it's, it's very clear. People, culture, and mission. And do you, you have a framework around the three Ps of mission. Is that right? I do. Uh, you know, 
people ask me to dive deeper and, and say, well, how do you develop a high-performing mission? Um, I uh, have thought through this uh, for it was a decade in the making, the, the book that I just uh, published. Um, and, and when I talk about mission focus, Claude, I think it, the foundation is prioritization. Uh, we live in a world where everything is a priority. Uh, it's so easy to get drowned in the noise. But when everything is a priority, as the saying goes, nothing is a priority. And that, that's where I see teams really struggle in terms of mission accomplishment and mission success. They're just not clear on you know, what their two or three top priorities are. And sometimes as leaders, it's our fault because we're not uh, prioritizing things uh, appropriately and protecting their time. So that's the foundation. Um, I think that uh, mission success, if it's founded on prioritization, the second P, it's formed through preparation. And the question is, as a leader, as you're looking out over the horizon, what are you doing to help prepare your team today for tomorrow's challenge or opportunity? And if we're not looking ahead over the horizon for our team, then, uh, you know, who is, I guess, would, would, would be the question. Uh, and then the third P uh, is what I think fuels mission success, and that is passion, and specifically passion for excellence. And I found that as leaders, if we set high standards, and then hold ourselves to an equal or higher standard, that that really begins to generate uh, a passion for excellence and continuous improvement. And going back to that conversation that we just had about debriefing, if you can fold those uh, kind candor uh, encounters uh, or those debriefs into that passion equation, then I really think that that, um, that rounds things out. And in my mind, those three Ps are really what will help a leader be well on their way to achieving mission success for their team. It's just great, David. It's just so wonderful. Again, the clarity and the succinctness of what what you offer because it's not rocket science. No. It's not. Now, flying a fighter plane might be rocket science, but it's it's not. And that doesn't say that it's going to come easy to everyone. Uh, but I love the clarity and, and actually cannot wait to read your book because... There's just gems and everything that you're dropping right now. So thank you. Well, thank you, Claude. Well, as I always say, uh, leadership uh, is, if not at the top, is near the top of uh, one of the most simple things in life in theory, but one of the one of the hardest things in practice. And so I, I think you just hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I really um, say about leadership often is that it's um it's not a, for me, it's not authority. It's not a badge that I put on my you know, I, I get dressed with every single day and walk around and say, I'm the leader, I'm the leader, I'm the leader. It's literally a choice. And there, yes, there are those of us that are born leaders and I'm, I'm fortunate to be one and it sounds like you are too. And I'm extremely grateful that that is how I was born. Mm. But I, I want to make sure that I'm, I am growing and developing tomorrow's leaders every single day, yeah. every single day. And that's what it's about. Yeah. Well, thanks for the compliment. I, I will uh, push back and tell you that I don't think I was a born leader. Uh, I, I feel like I've learned leadership and I've I've been very, very fortunate to have been able to learn leadership from some really wonderful leaders who are willing to invest in me. And that's really what my book is about, is how we can learn to lead. Um, and so that's that's what's most exciting to me is to help others learn to lead. You know, and, and you must have read my mind because my next question really was, who has been an inspiration to you? Who has said, to the younger David, I believe in you, and I know that you, I'm going to I'm going to help you get there. Yeah, 
Well, um, you know, it's hard for me to single anyone out. My book is dedicated to all of the Marines that I know who set the example, and many of them carried me on their shoulders, to be honest. Um, and they're the ones that I thank for teaching me how to lead. Uh, they set the example, as, as we both know. Uh, watching someone is so much more powerful in helping you learn than, than just, you know, hearing the words that they say. Walking the talk, I uh, had a number of colleagues, a uh, number of people that reported to me that today are uh, some of my best friends, have been mentors for years, and just wonderful leaders in their own rights. And um, so, you know, I've had a number of people. I do have a mentor. Um, his name is Art Athens. He was a, a, an instructor, a computer science instructor at the Naval Academy when I was there. And uh, he retired as a, as a Marine colonel. And eventually his last assignment was the director of the Admiral Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the Naval Academy. And wow. for the past almost 40 years, he has invested in me, uh, poured his uh, wisdom into me and, and mentored me through uh, many ups and downs. And so grateful for, for people like retired Colonel Art Athens and many others. That's, a be that's beautiful. And I, uh, I am sure that if I asked a, a number of people that you have touched, they would list you. So Hmm. Uh, what goes around comes around. Isn't that right? Well, that's very yeah. kind. Thank yes. you, I have um, kind of one other question, which is I'm, I'm formulating the question as we speak, as, as I take it in everything that you've been saying and we've been talking about. And it's about this phrase that I use quite a bit, which is 100% human at work and how we can build and create that type of, it's not, it's, it's, I, I don't mean it by a philosophy. I mean it, the practices of being a hundred percent human at work and much of what you've talked about lean, you know, really is a nod to humanity, of course. But again, I don't have an exact question, but when I say, Hey, what does a hundred percent human at work look like? What do you say? Oh well, that's a <laughs> tough question. Thanks for thanks for asking. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, Claude, I, I'd say first of all, being 100% human at work to me means recognizing that none of us are perfect. And um, you know, I, I I led in a very dangerous environment. Uh, you know, aircraft accidents were a possibility every single day. Was accountable for the lives of. You know, the few thousand people that reported to me supporting global operations, their families as well, um, while their loved ones were deployed. And, um, you know, none of us are perfect. Um, I think being 100% human at work starts with admitting our own mistakes and being willing to learn from those mistakes. That goes back to point number two that we talked about earlier about what is exceptional, uh, what are some traits of exceptional leaders, which begs the question, if we're not perfect and uh, you know it's inevitable that we're gonna make mistakes and people in our organization are gonna make mistakes, being 100% human, how do you handle that? And uh, what I found and what I advise leaders to do is to forgive honest mistakes because honest people will make honest mistakes. Now, there were some mistakes that I could not afford to forgive where people would, make, uh, would do things to intentionally disregard procedures that might endanger uh, the health of the lives of others. Those are mistakes that as an institution, you just cannot forgive those because it's, it sets the tone that those are acceptable and it's not. But I found that 99% of the mistakes were honest mistakes uh, made in good conscience. And so I think it's appropriate to forgive those honest mistakes. However, it's important that we learn from those mistakes and don't make the same mistakes twice. 
to the best we can. So I think that's point number one about not being 100% human. And point number two, I think, is related to that. It's, it's around being vulnerable and transparent as a leader. Because what I found, and I learned this the hard way, and I'm still learning it, you know, as a military leader, uh, it's not typical to wear your emotions on your sleeve, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, you're just going to suck it up. And if, if you were supposed to have emotions, they would have issued them to you in boot camp, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the way it goes. But what I found over time, and especially working in the private sector over the last decade, Claude, is that to the extent we're, we're willing to be vulnerable and transparent, that's how we connect emotionally with others. And that emotional connection is what allows us to influence others so that we can have honest conversations with people and influence them. Because in today's world, uh, do it because I said so doesn't work anymore. I'm not sure if it ever did, but it doesn't work. Um, let's talk about why this might be a good idea. And let me tell you about some vulnerable and transparent things that I'm feeling right now. That's how we connect. And that's how you influence people. So those would be my thoughts. I love it. I, I, I love it so much. Um, you give such a nod to humility. And uh, I thank you for that. I do think that that is the gateway to learning and the gateway to connection too. Mm. Uh, everything I, I could probably use humility as an umbrella to pretty much everything that you've said mm. today. Uh, and I, and I love that. I really, really do. Um, and I believe that I, I believe that, you know, we know that human beings are, are meant to belong and connect with one another since the dawn of time. That's what we've been doing. Regardless if you're an introvert or an extrovert, sure. we need connection. You and I have both seen the studies that isolation and addiction go hand in hand. And when a person feels connected and loved, that uh, A, there's recovery involved, but B, there's a tendency to not go down that slippery slope, which is really important as we see mental health um, as a real top line issue today uh, and um, something that we really need to pay attention to and destigmatizing. Uh, that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But I, um, I agree. And I probably would, would add in the 100% human at work is there are common denominators that are going to that are going to work for all of us because we are human and then there are those other potential niches or nuances that we would dig deeper in based on DEI or someone's lived experience which is going to be very different than general lived experience um, and I'm, I'm sure you talk about and work with people on their DEI strategies as well as, as I do, since that is where we are today. <laughs> sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, David, in our last moments together, are there any, we'll talk book suggestions, your book, of, of course, we're going to have right front and center, uh, podcast suggestions that you would share with the audience here in terms of anything, leadership, uh, deploying empathy, mission success, being a human. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, you know, just mention my book one more time. Uh, you know, it, it captures all of my um, thoughts and philosophies and everything that I've learned about leadership in my journey over the past uh, three plus decades. The Substance of Leadership, a, high, uh, a, a practical framework for effectively leading a high-performing team is, is what it's about. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, your your listeners can, can check that out on Amazon. Um, 
I, I also just one thing on my website, if, if some of your listeners might be interested, if they're leading a high performing team, I have a, a like a 15 question quiz, uh, which I call the performance pressure test. So that might give them some insights uh, if they're interested in that. But I will mention a lot of people have asked me over the last many years uh, if there are any books that have influenced me that might be helpful to them. And I always go back to Max Dupree's book, uh, Leadership is an Art. And uh, it's it's about 30 years old. It's, uh, you know, he was the CEO of Herman Miller. Um, it's, uh, I think it's timeless. It's, it's a very quick read, uh, just, you know, maybe 130 pages. But it really, several decades ago, helped me to really understand what servant leadership is all about and making sure that you are serving the people that report to you as opposed to the other way around. And it really created, uh, you know, some some deep thought in my mind about what real effective leadership looks like. And so uh, I would encourage people to check that out as well. Fantastic. And I um, I love that you said that. I, I agree that uh, being leaders about working for and working with, but not the other way around. Absolutely. Um, wonderful. We'll put a link to the book, the site, uh, any of your social social uh, uh, platforms. And it has been a pleasure. I hope this is the first of many chats. Me too, Claude. I really enjoyed it. Uh, great question. Thank you for allowing me the privilege of having the conversation with you. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again. Perfect. Bye. Hey, everybody. If you want to start a podcast or you have a podcast that you want to get up and running, please, please reach out to my team at onairbrands.com. That's onairbrands.com. They're the best.